Hello, I'm Diana Thomas. And I'm Tom Harper. Welcome to That Will the Smith Show. A podcast about the historical, geographical, natural and human background to the world of Wilbur Smith. movement below them on the plain. The torn canvas of an overturned wagon flapped like a wounded bird. The scurry and scuffle of the jackals, and higher up the slope of a copy, the hunched-shouldered trot of a hyena. Oh my God, whispered Sean. And Biani had leaned on his spear. His face was calm and withdrawn, but his eyes moved slowly over the field. Are they dead? Are they all dead? The question required no answer. He could see the dead men in the grass, thick about the wagons, and then scattered more thinly back up the slope. They looked very small and inconsequential. Mbijani stood quietly waiting. A big black Colby's vulture planed across their front. Feathers in its wingtips flated like the fingers of a spread hand. Its legs dropped, touched, and it hopped heavily to rest among the dead. A swift transformation from beautiful flight to obscene, crouching repose. It bobbed its head, ruffled its feathers, and waddled to dip its beak over a corpse that wore the green hunting tartan of the Gordons. That was Wilbur Smith's description of the battlefield in the aftermath of Isandwala in the Anglo-Zulu War, which is the subject of our podcast today, uh, as it's, as we know, the great inciting incident of when the lion feeds, when the Courtney family uh, are sort of broken into different directions. So, uh, in the last episode, we talked about the build-up to the Anglo-Zulu War. Today, we're going to be discussing the two most famous battles of that war, Isandlwana and Rockstrift. And we're really fortunate to have, again, with us once more, the historian and broadcaster, Professor Saul David, uh, Professor of Military History at the University of Buckingham and author of the book Zulu, uh, which was described by the Literary Review as the definitive history of the Zulu War. Saul, welcome back. Thanks, guys. Love doing this. So last time we discussed how the Zulu king Quechueo went to great pains to avoid a war, but the British administrators in South Africa, uh, most notably Theophilus Shepstone and Sir Bartle Freer, these wonderfully evocative names, um, actually engineered the conflict for their own purposes so they could subdue the Zulus, break their power and create a South African confederation. So what was the British strategy for achieving this in 1879? What was their war plan? And what went wrong at Isandwana, leading to one of the worst defeats that the British army and indeed the British Empire ever suffered? Well, Chelmsford's um, uh, strategies, overall strategy is to invade, Chelmsford being the British commander in chief, is to invade Zululand with three columns. And, you know, in total, that's probably about 10,000 men. And the main column uh, of roughly four and a half to 5,000, it, it gets swelled because one of the other sub-columns joins it. Um, uh, comes across uh, at Rock's Drift over the Buffalo River and into Zululand. And and Chelmsford is convinced, as I've already suggested, that uh, he's going to find it difficult to bring the Zulus to battle because he has such a technological superior, 
superiority over them. And therefore, they're really going to, you know, it's going to be a hit and run tactics. Why he thought that is still a mystery to me today, because he had a lot of people, Shepston included, telling him, uh, actually, no, this is the way they fight. This is what they're going to do. They are going to try and surround you and they're going to come at you with an awful lot of people. Nevertheless, he felt four and a half thousand guys armed with very effective weapons. Um, admittedly, not all of those were Europeans. A big chunk of those were African levies who were of much less uh, use, I suppose, on the battlefield uh, and traditional enemies, uh, actually, of the Zulus. And you certainly see at Addis Amwana, examples of when coming up against their ancient foe, they decide that discretion is the better part of valor uh, and they leave the field of battle. But nevertheless, uh, Chelmsford has a good um, uh, a good chunk of people, uh, British trained infantrymen. We're talking, you know, professional soldiers here uh, armed with very effective weapons and total numbers, as I say, in the region of four and a half to five thousand. Up against that is a, a Zulu army of 20,000. But what makes the battle uh, winnable for the Zulus on the 22nd of January 1879 is that Chelmsford not only has underestimated his enemy, he's now split his force. So he's gone away with effectively two thirds of his force and he's left 1700 uh, at the camp at Islamwana, which he doesn't believe will be attacked. Meanwhile, of course, the Zulus have uh, made this forced march. And how many of them are there? 20,000. So this is the main MP. There are more in the overall Zulu army, but this is the main MP, the main force of 20,000 credibly disciplined, uh, very brave warriors from everything from, you know, teenagers all the way up to uh, the older veterans would be in their late 30s and early 40s, uh, but all uh, very highly skilled warriors capable of marching great distances. And although they're not horsed, they are capable of covering a lot of ground very quickly. And on the morning of the 22nd of January, as I say, um, Chums has made the fatal decision to split his force because he has intelligence that the Zulus are at one place where they are not, of course. Uh, and, and this, I, I should add at this point, it's often felt, well, this is all about Chums's incompetence, uh, the defeat at Islamwana. In reality, the Zulus played the game very cleverly because they deliberately lured him using scouts and using smaller groups of Zulus away from the camp to the Mangeni Falls, which is to the southeast of the camp, whereas the main Zulu MP was in the north, uh, northeast. And so the attack, when it took place, was a complete surprise to those soldiers who'd been left in the camp, who'd just basically been given very vague orders to defend the camp if, if the Zulus come in sight, which is what they try and do, but they don't have enough soldiers ultimately. What was the Zulu plan? What were, what were their tactics? So the tactics that were used by the Zulus uh, at the Battle of Islam I were very similar to Shaka's tactics, which is the horns of the buffalo. The the main chest of the Zulu army, 20,000 strong, uh, uh, comes up against the, the main defences of the camp. Uh, meanwhile, the two horns of the buffaloes are racing all the way around the camp. Now, for a brief time, the, uh, the gunfire, in particular of the horsed men defending the camp, Durnford's horsemen, um, stops one of the horns. But eventually they get overwhelmed, driven back into the camp. Uh, and the camp is completely surrounded. It's then hand-to-hand uh, -hand fighting, which, of course, is what the Zulus excel at using their stabbing spears. Uh, and every single man who doesn't manage to escape from the camp, and that's 1,350 of them, are killed. Uh, most of them uh, then have their stomachs opened, which is why it's such a charnel house, such a, a brutal scene to see for those who come uh, afterwards. You, you read that wonderful description um, of Courtney coming across the 
Islam won a battlefield. And that is a, a, a scene that no doubt he's taken from actual reporters, you know, re- soldiers who also came upon the battlefield, not until a, a couple of months later, actually, because uh, so shocking was the defeated Islamwana that everyone stayed very much at arm's length from the Zulus. You know, they were really, the whole of the British force uh, was in shock, actually, of what had happened. But, it, but in any case, when they got to the battlefield, the site, even two months later, even with the decomposition of the bodies, was still an absolutely horrific sight of seeing these bodies that had been effectively eviscerated and cut to pieces. So that type of warfare really sends a, a shiver down your enemy and is an added layer of, of effectiveness, I suppose, for your armed forces. And dare I ask, were there any survivors? A few people get away. Maybe two or 300 um, uh, survive the attack, but everyone else dies. And it's interesting of the thousand British infantrymen, uh, mainly from the 24th foot who are present at Islam one, and ninety-five percent of them lose their lives. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's an absolute bloodbath. And the Zulus don't take prisoners, um, uh, and pretty much everyone is uh, is opened up, as we've already described, with the with the terrible Iqluwa, uh stabbing spear. Once the infantryman has fired his bullet from his Martini Henry rifle, if the Zulu can get close enough before he has time to reload the odds suddenly shift absolutely in favour of the Zulu. So in other words, you have to keep them at a distance because once they're close, they're going to beat you. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, the, the British infantrymen also had bayonets, which they would use as a matter of last resort. Uh, and, you know, you could take on a, a Zulu with his short stabbing spear with your bayonet. And the British infantrymen were very effective with bayonets. But it's really a question of numbers. You're absolutely right, Diana. The trick in this battle was to keep them at a distance. And as soon as they got close, it was going to be all over. And there's one uh, particularly sort of grim moment where one of the uh, companies of British infantry withdraw because they're under so much pressure and they can't load quickly enough. There is a bit of a myth about the battle, actually, that they ran out of ammunition. That That's not the case. They Even the, even a lot of the bodies that they found, the archaeology they did years later, they can see piles of unused ammunition. So it's not that they completely ran out of ammunition. It's just that they couldn't uh, load quickly enough. They were forced back into the camp. And once you're on the move, trying to load and fire when you're on the move and you don't have your, your, you know, your fellow infantrymen protecting you all around you, it was really, there was no chance for the, for the survivors at that point. Uh, and of course, as I've already explained, the Zulus are rampaging in from the back of the camp as well as from the front of the camp. And there was no chance really for those on foot to escape. Most of the Europeans who do get away, uh, get away because they're on horses. So the Zulus have overwhelmed the camp. I think we've not uh, described probably the most um, visually striking feature of this battlefield, which is the actual mountain of Isandwala itself. Because it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, I mean, it's described as a mountain in Wilbur's book. I think it's more of a, it's like a, a sort of a, a rock. Um, it's, it's, it's copier, isn't it, effectively? Yeah, it's a re- relatively small, sort of 500 feet high, uh, but it's very distinctive. It, it's it's set in kind of rolling plains. Anyone who's seen the the setting, it's incredibly beautiful landscape, actually, uh, with lots of you know little little um, uh, hidden valleys all over the place. But this sphinx-like, I mean, it's described as a sphinx, and when you see pictures of it, you can see why they felt it was sphinx-like. And it's ironic, actually, that the the emblem of uh, the regiment that fought and died at Islamwana uh, is a sphinx because they had uh, got that battle honor fighting in Egypt 
1800. Uh, and it was almost as though they were fated eventually to, to meet their, their, their maker, as it were, uh, at this extraordinary mountain. But, you know, one of the reasons that they chose to uh, camp in its, in its lee, really, is because it was so distinctive. It was a kind of a point that you could say, well, this is where we are. But, but also there was plenty, plenty of firewood and also water in the vicinity, and it made a perfect camping ground. Yeah. And in, in uh, When the Lion Feeds, um, as Sean Courtney picks his way over the battlefield, he sees where his father's unit have fallen, uh, gradually retreating up the mountain. Uh, and then when he gets uh, right to the, the, the very top of it is where he finds his father. Now, again, is this, so it was an incredibly vivid um, image of uh, almost like, you know, the tide rising up the mountain and they're retreating and they're retreating until they can go no further and they're, they're cornered. Again, is that historically accurate that um, people kind of retreat up this mountain trying to find safety? It is. And he's based that sequence of events really on the on the retreat of Durnford. Um, I mentioned Durnford once before. Durnford was used actually as the scapegoat for the defeat at, at uh, Istanbul by Chelmsford. Uh, Chelmsford insisted that Durnford was given orders to, to stay and defend the camp. Uh, not true, as as we, we discovered, that is, historians later discovered the actual order, and it never said anything about taking command of the camp. It, it just ordered him and his horsemen to uh, come towards the camp. And it was Durnford who, as I've already pointed out, managed to uh, prevent one of the uh, horns from getting fully surrounding the camp for a considerable period of time. They did have uh, have a little bit of trouble with ammunition, actually, not not so much the British infantrymen, but Durnford's men, and they withdrew. So under Durnford's command were a lot of uh, white settlers, which is where the Sean Courtney's father uh, bit comes into the story, or at least, you know, that you, you could say, well, he's part of one of those uh, uh, rough riding groups. Yeah, he, he's, he's part of like a, a, they're called a commando, I think, the, vol- the Cape Volunteers or something they're called, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And all of that is true. And and so Durnford is generally considered to have um, uh, led the last stand and they, manu- they they went further and further and further up the mountain. Although, interestingly, um, it's not they didn't go up the mountain of Istanbul itself, mainly because it's incredibly steep and it would have been difficult to have negotiated it. What they did is they maneuvered up to the top of something called a stone, the Stony Kopje which was a, another bit of high ground directly opposite the uh, the actual mountain of Istanbul or the hill of Istanbul. And in between is the famous saddle over which a number of Europeans fled to uh, get away. And also finally where the uh, Zulu impis, the two horns of the buffalo met when they finally surrounded the camp. So all, all of that is absolutely true. And he has based that on historical fact, that withdrawal of Durnford and his horsemen uh, to the Stony Kopje, where all of them perished. Yeah, well, I didn't realise it quite that um, historically, um, you know, close to fact. One of the big criticisms of the Battle of Isamwana is that the the uh, camp wasn't properly entrenched. They didn't uh, build a, a lager of wagons, which is what the Zulu, which is what the Boers had always recommended, uh, and they didn't build an entrenchment, which is what the um, uh, Europeans were doing in other similar situations. So, having learnt that lesson, they made sure they made pretty sure that the Zulus were never going to get that close again circling the wagons i mean that's that's what you do if you're crossing the great plains and you're frightened of native americans yeah and it's what the boers learned to do when they were crossing the veld and it's what the british should have done but wouldn't do 
So there you go. There was a lot of criticism after the battle, uh, mainly directed by Chumpsford onto the defenders of the camp for not having circled the wagons. Uh, first point, he never left any orders for them to circle the wagons. And the orders he did actually leave, and again, these were discovered by historians uh, years later, were in the event of an attack, you will set out the defences like this. Nothing about the wagons, uh, but you will put the infantry in the forward defensive positions well away from the camp. And it's interesting, he actually specified well away from the camp. Why? To give them clear lines of fire. And again, a sign of complete overconfidence that they're going to be able to take down the Zulus at a great distance. And then on either side of that defensive position, you put both the cavalry, that's Durnford's men, if you've got cavalry. There weren't always cavalry with the with the, uh, uh, the the armed forces that they were coming in or the British and settler armed forces. But if you had cavalry, you put them on the flanks and you also put the African levies on the flanks as well, where they would, you know, in effect, not not potentially get into as much trouble as if they were in the front line. And of course, that could be broken. So those were the uh, uh, the tactics he insisted on. Just to get back to the So we, we've got the, the two forces, each seeking land, one moving south, that's the Zulu, and one moving north, that's the British. And one of them is incredibly mightily um, equipped, and the other is equipped with relatively primitive weapons. And it's kind of reminiscent of the white settlers coming across Northern America. And it's interesting that Isnodwana takes place just three years after Little Bighorn, which is a very similar case of a native army destroying supposedly better armed, um, sort of uh, colonialist, I guess you would say, white army. And the question arises, how did they do it? I mean, was it just the incompetence you've just, not incompetence or carelessness you've just described of Chelmsford not taking appropriate precautions, arrogance, I suppose, on his point, or was there something else about the way they fought which took the British army by surprise and taught them a lesson they wouldn't forget? Um, well, I mean, uh, the, there's sort of two elements to that question. The first, I, you know, one, one of the interesting, it's, it is a very interesting historical parallel, actually. The, the, um, uh, the native Indians in North America had a big advantage over the uh, Zulus fighting the British for two reasons, actually. One, the number of, of soldiers they came up against. The, this, of course, is the famous uh, last stand of Custer and the 7th Cavalry at Little Bighorn, was much smaller. We're only talking about a few hundred as opposed to uh, almost 2,000 in the case of, of uh, well, 1,750 in the case of Islam Wana. So you can see that the European force was much bigger at Islam Wana, uh, and therefore the Zulus had a much tougher uh, uh, challenge. Um, but... The other advantage that the um, uh, Native Americans had over the uh, 7th Cavalry and Custer, and there was all this hubris of overconfidence, and I can go in there and I can take them out with a relatively small force from Custer's side. But the, um, the Native Americans were mounted, which meant that they were much more mobile uh, and they were also equipped with more effective weapons. So we talked about the fact that the Zulus hardly used firearms, or at least if they did, they were pretty basic and then they then they, you know, it was a one-shot weapon. Whereas the uh, Native Americans actually were equipped, a lot of them, with repeating firearms, which they got, again, off unscrupulous traders. And they'd been spending an awful lot of time getting their hands on some pretty good kit. So they were much better equipped than the, uh, uh, than the Zulus were in terms of the, the, the sort of technological challenge they would have to face. 
there was, of course, in the North American, in the US Army at that time, um, Gatling guns and, you know, the other things that I've spoken about that the British had. But they didn't, generally speaking, they didn't have them in this campaign because it was a long distance horse campaign. And really, in the end, what, by the time you got to Little Bighorn, it was really just a question of horse soldiers armed with, uh, you know, pretty decent weapons uh, against horse soldiers with, with equally decent weapons and just a lot more of them. So that defeat is much more explicable, I think, uh, uh, in, in, in that sense. And, and it makes the victory of the Zulus at Istanbul a, a much greater achievement, in my view. So the bulk of Chelmsford's column has been destroyed. The British have been soundly defeated at Isandwana. And the day isn't over yet, because I think the most extraordinary thing is that another battle, another equally legendary and evocative battle, is fought on the very same day. So let's move on now to Rourke's Drift, which, uh, if not exactly a victory for the British, uh, was certainly spun as a mighty heroic engagement uh, in which the Zulus had been seen off. Um, which Wilbur, of course, captures brilliantly well. So here is Wilbur's snapshot of Garrett Courtney's experience at Rourke's Drift from When the Lion Feeds. There had been a Zulu with the blue heron feathers of an Induna in his headdress. He had led the charge. His shield was dried oxhide, dappled black and white, and at his wrists and ankles were bunches of war rattles. Garrick had fired at the instant the Zulu half-turned to beckon to his warriors, the bullet sliced across the tensed muscles of his belly and unzipped it like a purse. The Zulu went down on his hands and knees, with his entrails bulging out in a pink and purple mass. The wounded Zulu started to crawl towards Garrick, his mouth moving and his eyes fastened on Garrick's face. He still had the assegai in his hand. The other Zulus were beating at the door, and one of them ran his spear blade through a crack in the woodwork and lifted the bar. The door was open. So that reading was taken from uh, when the lion feeds description of the Battle of Rourke's Drift as seen or not seen by Garrett Courtney. And I guess the first question to ask is, how did the conflict move from the first battle at Isandwana down to Rourke's Drift? What was the sequence of events? Well, the distance between the two battlefields was 11 miles and... Um, there's one crucial component of the Zulu army, the Zulu MP, that is not involved in the Battle of Islamwana because it's not required, and that is the reserve. So, in effect, every Zulu army has a chest, two horns, horns of the buffaloes, and the loins, or reserve as it's known. And, of course, you bring in the reserve in an emergency if you haven't managed to break through and beat your enemy with the first three elements. Well, they had managed to do that at Islamwana. So the reserve is uh, left having not fought anyone and they're pretty keen to get into the fray and they hear word that there is a a, a mission station uh, just across the natal border over the buffalo river at rock's drift where indeed chelms's army has uh, come from in the first place and that this is easy pickings it's effectively a supply station there'll be grain there'll be uh, you know ammunition other things that the Zulus can get their hands on. It will, in effect, be an invasion of, of Natal, uh, but only briefly. That's the plan. So you, you get across the river, you take the mission station, you sack it, you kill anyone defending it, and then you move off. So that's pretty much what was going on. There were no specific orders, certainly not from Chichwaya, the king, 
to cross into Natal. And he says uh, after the uh, campaign is all over and the Zulus, of course, have been defeated, that, you know, this was a big mistake and he never gave those orders. So it's the individual commander in charge of the reserve uh, of the Zulu army who decides to attack Rourke's Drift. The only problem he's got uh, is that Rourke's Drift is a mission station with a a church uh, effectively attached to it. They set up these two buildings in in effect as a supply uh, station. And in the gap between the Zulu MP deciding to go to um, Rourke's Drift and actually getting there and and attacking the uh, position, the commanders at Rourke's Drift, two uh, lieutenants, Chard and Bromhead, famous from the film Zulu, have made the decision, encouraged by one of their, effectively an NCO, a man called Dalton, um, to uh, create a little fortified position. So they use mealy bags and, and biscuit tins and, and wagons to join up the two buildings into what is in effect a mini fortress. And by the time the Zulus arrive, and what are the numbers we're talking about? Roughly 3,000 Zulus, about 100 fit soldiers. That's basically a company of uh, uh, British soldiers and another 35 people who'd been left at, at Rourke's Drift to recover from wounds and illness and, and other things. So you're only talking about 140 defenders, but the position has been so heavily fortified that they were able to use their Martini Henrys and other weapons very effectively against the attacking uh, Zulus. So, and the Zulus attack in a series of rushes. Really, they are relatively uncoordinated. And if they'd all come in in one big attack from from multiple different directions, they probably would have succeeded. But as you see the battle unfold over a number of hours, towards the afternoon of the twenty second of January, eighteen seventy nine, on into the night, it's a sort of um, a two day battle. It goes almost all through the night. They do nibble away at bits of the defences. They get into the building that's been used as the hospital where a lot of you know, dramatic fighting is going on, all of which has been very sort of heavily uh, sourced by uh, the people involved in the fighting. And a lot of the Victoria Cross winners were people who helped in the defence of the hospital. Uh, the Zulus do manage to get into that position, but the, the defenders of Rourke's Drift pull back into an even tighter, almost in effect, an inner redoubt. And it's that inner redoubt that is never uh, penetrated by the Zulus. And then in the morning, they realize they can't take the position and they withdraw. Having incurred horrific casualties, um, something like 500, we think, were were killed in the attack on on Rourke's Drift. Um, You know, it's really brutal. And a number of wounded Zulus are then killed by the uh, Redcoats afterwards. Uh, They're sort of lying in the orchard uh, various positions surrounding the mission mission station, and they are killed out of hand. You know, considered to be after the event a bit of a war atrocity, which no doubt it was. But it was, uh, you know, it was pretty brutal warfare from both sides. It, it needs to be said. To what extent? I mean, you mentioned the film, which you know everybody of a certain generation, and every British person of a certain generation knows all too well. It's kind of like the Great Escape. It's one of those films you can't avoid, right? Um, I mean, it's an absolutely famous sort of historical epic, and there's Michael Caine turning himself into a superstar before your very eyes. How accurate is the film in its depiction of what went on? I mean, is, is it over-dramatised, or is it, in fact, exactly pretty much what happened? Uh, I actually appeared on a, a podcast which was really about matching films with historical events, and I uh, answered that question in a lot of detail. And and I'll give you a shorter version now, but it is incredibly accurate, actually. Certainly the beats of the story, the way the battle unfolds, the, the arrival of the Zulus, the 
the the setting up of the defensive position, the even the, the the moments of the battle, those crucial moments when the Zulus do eventually get into the hospital, they get into it actually by setting it on fire, which drives the defenders out, and they eventually take position of that of of the hospital. All of that is depicted in the order it actually happened in the film Zulu, and it's all depicted very accurately. The big thing I have issue with in relation to the film is the depiction of Chard and Bromhead as the architects of the defense. Now, these are the two officers who uh, later win the Victoria Cross or awarded the Victoria Cross. But here's a significant fact which you might not be aware of, Diana, that in the immediate aftermath of the battle, uh, the... Um, uh, you always have, uh, I mean, the, the first thing that happens after a, a big engagement with the British Army is that the senior people then give their recommendations for gallantry medals. There was no mention of Chard and Bromhead in those initial recommendations. They were added to the list. They were all NCOs and privates who were recommended for the Victoria Cross, six of them. And they were added to the list by um, Chelmsford. And I think he did that because he wanted to say, you know, this is a wonderful example of officer-led defense. Uh, and, and here's the important part, it's going to obscure the disaster at Juana. So if we build up Rourke's Drift into having saved Natal, which is what they claimed, not true, but they claimed it. Uh, and if we say that we're going to give out eight Victoria Crosses, as it happens, uh, 11 were eventually given out. So there were another three added to the to the list, one of which went to Dalton, the man I mentioned before, who is, in my view, the real hero, because not only did Dalton uh, prevent Chard and Bromhead from abandoning the post, which is what they wanted to do, he was the guy who actually said, no, we need to set it up. We need to set up the defences in this way. And he also led the defence. And you see from some of the contemporary documents that the reason that Chard and Bromhead were, were left at Rourke's Drift and were not with the main column, which was, of, of course, assumed to be doing all the fighting, was because they weren't the most effective officers. So they weren't the brightest pair. Um, and uh, Dalton's actions will show you, you know, in my view, that he was the real hero of the action. So they were sort of added to the list. Now, you don't get any of that in the film. They, they absolutely play the straight card. It's these two guys who define, design the defence and lead the defence and uh, but that's my only caveat. The rest of the story is is depicted very accurately. Well, that's that's. I, mean, I think the, in your book, uh, you uh, th there's there's another detail which uh, I feel we have to highlight, which you say, contrary to the impression given by the iconic film Zulu, uh, B Company, so the, the 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 Redcoats were not dominated by Welshmen, liable to break into a rendition of Men of Harlech at the first <laughs> opportunity. You've absolutely <laughs> shattered my uh, my illusions there. Yeah, it. Well, I I I I must admit, I felt a little bit guilty about putting that in the book. I, I was actually born and brought up in Monmouthshire. Uh, and uh, so I, I, this is this is a question of statistics, damn statistics. It is absolutely true that the 24th Foot was was really a Warwickshire regiment at that time. Later became the South Wales Borderer. So you know that's that's the kind of longe that that's the story of the regiment. But nevertheless, there were a number of people from Monmouthshire within the 24th Foot. The point is, in those days, Monmouthshire was not considered to be part of Wales. It now is. So we're really splitting hairs here. This is kind of border country. Uh, most of these guys were were from either Wales, Monmouthshire, and or uh, the cities of, of Birmingham and, and uh, the Midlands. But they certainly weren't all Welshmen. I think, I think they give the idea in the film that, you know, this is really a, a Welsh regiment. It was going to become a Welsh regiment. It had Welsh in it, but not the sort of proportion that they were implying on the film. Um, so, of course, one of the main characters in the film is Hook, Hook, Hooky, 
who's this malingerer and scrounger and thoroughly bad person who ends up being a hero, an unexpected hero who wins the VC. Is that an actual character or is that a sort of fictional, another fictional change? Well, Hook is a real person uh, and the actions that they ascribe him in the film, he actually carried out. He was in the hospital. He managed to save a lot of lives in the hospital. He's the guy who leads the movement from one room to another. You get, you get that very dramatic scene in the film where they're literally breaking through the walls into the next room. And in the next room, they find some more wounded and then they lead them into the next room. Hook was absolutely crucial in all of that. The, the misdirection in the film is by making out that Hook was some kind of drunkard who was on, uh, you know, who was in the hospital really because he was being given the job of, of uh, you know, effectively, uh, he was under house arrest because he was a, a malingerer, as you say, and a, and a you know, a typical ne'er-do-well. Not true at all. He had an absolutely spotless record. He was from Gloucestershire. Um, again, you see this kind of border territory uh, link between Monmouthshire and Gloucestershire. Uh, and he was, most important uh, detail to remember, he was a teetotal. So he couldn't possibly have been this sort of drunkard that they depicted in the film. And interestingly enough, the, the uh, premiere of the film, to which all Hook's uh, uh, descendants were invited, uh, they were so upset with the depiction of their ancestor as the as this ne'er do well that they they walked out of the um, the premiere. So it's it's an extra bit of information. I I mean I forgive the producers, frankly, and the director and the writer uh, that sort of liberty because they wanted to turn him into a sort of you know typical ne'er do well. That's fine. I mean the the actions that which he carried out were absolutely and that's what is much more important to me what what he actually did to win his vc this goes right back to your point you made right at the beginning of our conversation about when you stop being a historian and you start being a creative writer it, it's a much more interesting character arc if the person who turns out to, a, to be a hero starts out as anything but a hero it makes him much more interesting than if he's just a hero all the time so, of course, from the scriptwriter's point of view, that's an entirely natural thing to do. But equally, from the family's point of view, for whom he's a real person or was a real person, I can just imagine why they want to walk out. But, but I'm afraid to say that if you're writing fiction, then it's just tough luck. Yeah, someone needs to have a word with the family and say, um, you know, and say there will, you know, there will be some liberties taken with characterization. It is tricky when you're when you're manipulating the the the, the background and character of a real person. That's absolutely true. We we've all faced the issue when we're writing fiction. My my view is, uh, and I remember McDonald Fraser saying this to me too when I was, I I oddly enough um, have had the. Uh, well, how would you put it, the sort of, you know, the, the privilege, I suppose, of being the last person, to, last uh, journalist. I mean, I was writing for the, writing a piece for the Daily Telegraph to interview McDonald Fraser. And he said to me, look, stick, stick true to the spirit of the person. But you have to, you know, if you want to take, if you want to really manipulate history, then, you know, you have to make up characters as your central characters. But when you're dealing with real people, stick true to their spirit. I think that's what he said. Did they do that with Hook? Possibly not. But, um, you know, his, his actions were, were nevertheless uh, depicted very accurately, I thought. Of course, the way Wilbur gets around this is he has Garrett Gottney there, who is a, luckily a completely fictional character. Um, and I was amused when you were talking about the inflation of Victoria Cross citations, because it went from six to eight to 11. Uh, in When the Lion Feeds, actually, Garrick is told that there have been 15 citations for the old VC. And I assume this is Wilbur having a bit of a joke, because, of course, one of the uh, citations that's been added is actually Garrick Courtney himself. 
is, is has been added to that list of people who get the VC for his actions defending the hospital. So he said this is presumably one of the crucial moments of the battle where the Zulus break into the hospital. Uh, and in the book, Garrick, um, this brilliant moment of kind of um, unwitting heroism, trips and his arm jams in the bolts of the door. And, and his arm is effectively being the, the, the bar that holds the door shut as the Zulus hammer on it. Uh, and as a result, the, um, the, the other uh, residents of the hospital are able to get to safety. Um, I mean, is there anything like that that happens or is this Wilbur letting his imagination run riot? Yeah, no, that that that's definitely where we're taking a bit of artistic license. But again, with with a character, with a completely made up character, if he does that with one of the you know the guys who actually was in the hospital, uh, Hook uh, and others, you 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 would hope that he's not going to sort of make up the make up the scenarios. But no, I, I think the 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 defense of the hospital is is one of those you know the whole of Rourke's Drift is a classic last stand for Mopoli type battle. Uh, the Alamo. I mean, there are many, many of them, but the hospital fighting was was a, a microcosm of that. It was a battle within a battle, and it's incredibly dramatic because it involves a few fit men basically saving a lot of uh, injured injured uh, characters, people who were unwell. One guy's delirious. I mean, I think they leave the delirious guy there. Actually, he's killed, and I I know they depict that quite accurately in the film Zulu. But it it. <laughs> absolutely lends to you know inserting a fictional character which of course is what i've done in my own book zulu heart where my protagonist george also george um fights in the hospital as well as a sort of supernumerary uh, and yet alongside that a lot of the fighting that actually took place i i depict quite accurately or at least trying to yeah, of course flashman was there as well so i'm i'm, I'm imagining that uh, flashman george hart and garrett courtney all getting together and having a chat someone someone needs to write the fan fiction of this yeah, well, that's why it went up to 15 VCs, because uh, George <laughs> yeah, also... Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about it as fiction, but I mean, very quickly, Rourke's Drift became legend, became myth. I mean, how, how fast was it, that, that the kind of idea of Rourke's Drift, and how needed was it? As you say, I mean, Chelmsford needed to cover up for the defeat of Isilwana. I should imagine that the government was only too grateful for an example of British heroism when there'd been an example of British failure. And I mean, and it's absolute catnip to the sort of burgeoning Fleet Street press. I mean, how fast was the process of Rourke's Drift becoming mythologized? Incredibly quickly. And, uh, you know, as you've sort of suggested, it was needed. It was very much needed. These two battles took place on the same day. One was an utter disaster that, you know, compares with anything, any any military disaster in British military history, actually, but, but certainly in the Victorian period. And the only competitors are battles like Maiwand, which took place in um, Afghanistan a couple of years, well, a year later, in fact, in 1880. Uh, and then you have to go all the way back to the retreat from Kabul, probably to find another disaster uh, 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 that could compare. And the shock to the system for the British public was such that they were absolutely uh, looking out for anything that, that could kind of leaven the effect of that and, and still make them feel a little bit good about themselves, about a British feat of arms. So Rourke's Drift was incredibly fortuitous, but it was undoubtedly exaggerated both by the commanders in South Africa and also by the politicians at home, again, to, to deflect from their responsibility for what had been, a, frankly, a, 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 a war of aggression and a war of aggression that had started uh, very badly with this humiliating defeat. So there's one particularly telling quote from um, Chelmsford where he writes to one of the officers 
who's who's writing the report of Rourke's Drift and says, you know, please tell me it's finished because I am uh, I'm desperate to send that little gleam of sunshine, uh, as he described it in his letter, uh, as at home as quickly as possible. And of course, waiting uh, back home was Disraeli, the Prime Minister, or Lord Beaconsfield, as he had become who also was looking to get some good news to deflect the political sort of, you know, fallout um, from the defeat at uh, Islamwana. Not to be underestimated, the effect that um, the the setbacks during the Zulu War, ultimately won by the British, of course, but the initial setbacks had on him in a political sense. Um, So he was desperate to get that news. And they were trumpeting it in uh, Parliament and exaggerating, as I've already suggested, the effect of the battle by saying it effectively saves um, Natal when that simply wasn't the case. They, they gave out more VCs for Rorkstrift than have ever been awarded for any single action in the history of the British Army. Uh, and given that there are only, as I've already pointed out, 140 <laughs> soldiers defending it, you, you see that the, the, the VC strike rate is over 10%. I mean, it's ludicrously high. No, never got even close in, in any other instance. And that will give you an indication of how determined they were to build it up into being something it really wasn't. It was a border skirmish uh, that was won by a group of determined, but not particularly heroic uh, defenders. And when I say not particularly heroic, by that I would I, I want to quote Woolsey, who, who's the commander who was sent out to replace Chelmsford um, not long after Rourke's Drift, who says, well, of course they fought tenaciously. They were like rats in a trap. We'd have all done the same thing. And, and I think that really puts it into context where the people who... If, I, if I'm going to give one caveat, the people who deserved the VCs were the people who rather heroically uh, uh, at least risked their lives to save the people in the hospital. But but everybody else, including the two officers, I'm not so sure. So so there's there's another kind of little detail from When the Lion Feeds at Rock's Drift that I just want to ask you about, Saul, uh, because Wilbur, as, as Garrick is remembering uh, being there, uh, he talks about uh, the clustered barrels of the Gatling machine gun jump, jump, jumped as they swung, cutting down the Zulus so they fell upon each other thick along the wall. Um, I have to say, I did not see Gatling guns in the movie. Um, are there Gatling guns at Rock Drift? I know it's a small point, but I'm curious. No, there, there are not. Um, there were Gatling guns, uh, as I think I've indicated, in the in the war as a whole because the... Um, they were used at Olundi. They were also used at one of the battles in southern Zululand, Gingud Lovu, uh, as it was known, which was fought by another column. But they didn't have them at Rourke's Drift for the very good reason that the Gatling guns were considered to be offensive weapons. They, they didn't have many of them. And they were therefore with the columns that had actually invaded into Zululand. Although, again, interestingly enough, they weren't at Islamwana either because the force that had marched out under Chelmsford on the morning of the 22nd <laughs> had taken the Gatling guns with them. So <laughs> it, in, it, it, it's, it's a... It's a, it's a so this is an error which I sort of forgive because they could have been at Rourke's Drift. It's just for reasons of military tactics, I suppose, more than anything else. They were actually up with the forces that were inside Zululand and not being used in a defensive uh, sense at Rourke's Drift. I always think it's maybe uh, Wilbur doing a little bit of homage to his grandfather as well, the original Courtney Smith, who I think, uh, Diana I think knows more about this, but I think what did actually work transporting Gatling guns for the army in the Zulu War. Um, uh, yeah, I think I think it's all that's all told in um, on Method Rock, isn't it? The story of the, the story of the, yeah, yeah, and and and, and who was of course a huge hero to the young Wilbur. So, I think again, a fiction writer is entitled to take their own personal influences and the things that have meant a huge amount to them in their lives and 
weave it into their stories. I mean, that's what, kind of what we're supposed to do. We'll forgive the Gatling guns because, we, I mean, I, I forgive the Gatling gun addition to the Rorksdrift story for the simple fact that they did have those weapons in the invading armies at the time. It just so happened that they weren't at Rorksdrift, but they existed and they were being used. That's actually a very interesting point in terms of historical fiction. There is absolutely a qualitative difference between something that could have happened, even if it didn't happen, and something that could never possibly have happened. And, 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 and I think you can, I think a, fic, a writer of historical fiction, can, and indeed contemporary fiction, actually, if you're writing a thriller or something, you have a hero do some wildly improbable thing. If somebody who knows about the subject says, well, it didn't actually happen, but it could have done, that's always good enough for me. Whereas if they say, no, that's impossible, it would never, that's just simply couldn't possibly have happened, then equally that's, that's a kind of red line. So score one for Wilbur. So uh, we've had Isandwala, which is a terrible defeat. We've had Rock's Drift, which is a morale-boosting but probably fairly inconsequential victory. Um, where does that leave the, the progress of the war? There are various other engagements that the other columns are involved in. They are effectively defensive victories. There are no more defeats for the British. Uh, but Chelmsford's really the key to the rest of the story because having eventually got back to Islamwana and seen the kind of charnel house of, uh, you know, all the dead bodies lying on the field of battle, he withdraws across the river to Rourke's Drift, again sees the, you know, the destroyed hospital, but realises that they've made a quite an effective stand there. And, of course, that's what starts on his... You know, we, we can um, use Rockstrip to take away from Islamwana. But he's also absolutely convinced that when he goes back into, uh, when he reinvades um, Zululand, and he, he does that a couple of months later, he's going to do so with such a large force and a force that takes no chances. In other words, every night it's going to create effectively a fort around it. It's going to dig entrenchments and it's going to bed itself in. That when the Zulus do eventually come out to fight, which they do as he's nearing the capital of Alundi, it's going to be a very one-sided fight. And that's exactly what happens. So Alundi is the final battle, takes place in early July 1879. Uh, it's a catastrophic defeat for the Zulus. Hardly any uh, European lives are lost in that battle. Uh, and uh, to give you a sense of the superiority of the Europeans by that point, they have Gatling guns, they have artillery, and they also have cavalry, um, which they use to uh, pursue the defeated Zulus. And, and that's really the end. A month later, Chechwaya, the Zulu king himself, is captured, uh, sent into exile, and Zululand is broken up into a number of smaller statelets that the British assume, you know, using their typical practice of divide and rule, will be much easier to control Zululand. Actually, it's the start of a period of civil war, internecine fighting between the various Zulu factions that is only brought to an end when Chichwire is brought back from exile. He lives for a couple of years uh, and then dies. And finally, Zululand itself is completely subsumed by the British uh, when they annex it, which they had, you know, at least claimed they didn't want to do, but they finally do that in 1887. And, and that's sort of the end of the story. There, there is some more trouble in, in years to come uh, with people trying to you know, resurrect the Zulu kingdom, but that's really the end of the, of the Anglo-Zulu war story. And what happens to the Zulu people themselves? I mean, do they, I mean, they presumably retain their identity of themselves and the history of themselves, culture. Absolutely. And um, to this day, of course, they, they, they look back on that time as, you know, a, a disaster for their nation, but it, but it didn't destroy their culture. 
Um, they are now, I think, statistically, the biggest single subgrouping of Bantu in, in Southern Africa. So, And they play an inordinately um, uh, uh, powerful role in South African politics, as we saw during the end of the apartheid era. And also since since the uh, you know uh, black majority rule, the Zulu um, vote has always been a real key factor in politics. So they are big players in Southern African politics to this day, and their culture still looks back on the on the victory at Islamwana with huge pride, and of course the later defeats with you know. Uh, being a tragedy for their nation. Yeah, in fact, I visited the battlefield of Asandwala, um, I think it was a day or two before the anniversary in January 2020. Um, and there's a massive marquee set up because the king was going to come on the anniversary and hold effectively a rally um, with uh, or, you know, a, a, a large number of his kind of Zulu subjects uh, because this was still seen as such a great uh, victory and a really sort of potent symbol of kind of Zulu power and resistance. So, yeah, even to this day, it, it's got a lot of resonance. When the BBC made a documentary on on the battle, the, the twin battles of Rorke's Drift and, and Isamwana about 20 years ago, we we did a lot of filming on the actual battlefield itself and we used a lot of the locals to to you know to appear as extras effectively uh in fighting the battle and uh, lo and behold they all had the right kit i mean they look absolutely as they would have done in the 19th century with with their kilts and their and their spears and you know all and their headdresses it was it was absolutely extraordinary we had more of a hundred of them and you might think well you you've got to go to some costume department to get all of that kit no absolutely they have that stuff still to this day, still wear those sort of uh, uniforms uh, and dresses for ceremonial occasions, for rallies. And so it is still a very live bit of history in Zulu culture, the story of the Anglo-Zulu War. And I mean, I suppose that's also clear about right at the beginning, why, you know, why are the Zulu the kind of iconic African tribe? It's because they did win. I mean, it's because they actually did score that victory. And because even when in the public mind, they were beat. They were beaten, or at least held off. I mean, it's interesting in the film of Zulu. It's 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 very much stated. I don't know how much how accurately that the the attack ceases the following morning after the sort of when dawn comes up, not because the Zulu have been defeated, but because in the way the film tells it, they're doing it as a, as a mark of honour to the defendants. It's okay. You've put up this fantastic fight. We respect you as warriors we are going to choose to leave the battlefield. We have not been beaten. And so, so they do have, I suppose, because of the film, because the name is so cool, of course, Prime Minister Ridiculous, but it is, you know, Zulu is a, it's a NATO letter, after all. it's part of our culture. Um, they retain this kind of completely iconic status because of these great warriors, because they could beat the modern army. Yes, it's um, it's absolutely true, and they are seen in the in the you know we go all the way back. I sort of briefly kind of hinted at it in, in one of my uh, earlier comments. You, you go all the way back to the Spartans. I mean, the Zulus were known as the, as the Black Spartans. They are very similar in terms of their culture and their and their military prowess. And that that I'm afraid you know as long as mankind still fights wars, and of course we're in the middle of a pretty grim war in Europe at the moment. Um, you know, the, the warrior cult will still be significant and, and and it still is there's still tremendous respect i suspect and probably fear and and maybe a little bit of uh, uh, other attitudes towards the zulus in south africa today because they are not only a political force they're a kind of you know they're a kind of physical force that you 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 have to be aware of 
And I think the other thing that's, that's interesting in terms of the historical memory is that you know, we've talked about three battles, effectively. We've talked about Islandwana, uh, Rock's Drift, and Alundi. Um, when we were talking before the program with our producer, Christopher, you know, he was saying that obviously he'd heard of Rock's Drift, um, very famous, um, hadn't heard of Islandwana, and probably many people haven't, but, a certain, but you know, a, students of that period would have done. I'll admit that... Um, even as myself, someone who, like you, has been fascinated by this period and the subject for a long, long time, I'd never heard of the Battle of Alundi until I really started looking into this um, in a very deep way. I mean, that's one that's completely forgotten. So it's like, you know, we're happy to remember the defeat. We're happy to remember, you know, we're more than happy to remember the, the glorious kind of survival against the odds. But the one where we actually duff them up, um, you know, losing 13 men uh, against however many thousands of, of theirs we kill, actually, we, we sort of sweep that under the rug. It's almost like we're embarrassed. So in the popular imagination, the, the Zulus haven't actually been defeated. No, I know. Um, but the lesson, of course, to, to learn, certainly if you're a historian trying to find a good subject, is you've got to have jeopardy. Um, jeopardy works in fiction, as we all know. I mean, it's absolutely crucial in fiction. And I think nonfiction writers can really learn from uh, the best fiction writers uh, because you, 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 have to be, you have to be telling a story that could go either way. Now, a lot of history is genuinely contingent. I mean, they're, they're, you know, but for this, it could have been that. But there was no contingency with the Battle of Alundi, and therefore it's a, it's a sort of non-starter. We're, we're almost not proud of it because it was so one-sided. There is no sort of credit to get. No one got a VC for, for Alundi. Once, once Chelmsford has worked out the sheer brute force required to defeat them, there's, there's simply no way they can possibly beat the sheer weight of material that's put up against them. And it's just, it's just not humanly possible. The significance of the Zulu war, in my view, is um, it was unwinnable for the Zulus, uh, of course, against the, the might of the British Empire. Um, but they had, to, uh, they had to engage and they had to have some success, so that, that, which is why the Battle of Isamwana is so important for the Zulu nation to this day, it's almost Clausewitzian to accept that you are going to go down as a nation, but the way you go down is important. You can't just submit, which is why, going back to my earlier comments, they could never have agreed to that um, that humiliation of, of literally laying down their weapons and, and demilitarizing their nation. It, it simply wasn't possible for them. So you go down fighting and this allows a rebirth. Yeah. So there we have the, the end of the Anglo-Zulu War. Of course, it's not the end of Sean Courtney's story because as a result of what's happened at Islandwala with his father dying and at uh, Rock's Drift with his, father, with, with his brother becoming a war hero, he will then strike out across the mountains to seek his fortune at a place called Witwatersrand, uh, which will be the subject of our next episode. Um, but for now, we're going to leave it and we're going to say goodbye to Saul David. Thank you so much, Saul, for joining us. It's been an absolute delight having you. Thanks, guys. Uh, and of course, if you'd like to learn more about Saul uh, and his many books, you could check out his website, which is sauldavid.co.uk. Sauldavid, all one word, .co.uk. And you could check out his, uh, his own podcast called Battleground Ukraine, which he co-hosts with Patrick Bishop. Um and uh, yeah, we, I, I see you, you've written your book about military blunders, uh, so of which there are there are plenty to choose from. So hopefully we'll uh, have something else to talk to you about at some point in future. Absolutely. Come back soon.
That Wilbur Smith Show is produced by Christopher Wynne. Music by Dewey DeLay.